in keeping with Adrian's series on Genesis. The reading today is from Genesis chapter 1 and a small portion up to verse 4 in chapter 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to the one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. 
God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all he had made and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and all the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. We look forward to Adrian's interpretation of those words. Thank you, Michael. I look forward to my interpretation as well. <laughs> I guess we'll all land somewhere after this morning. Uh, it's one of those weeks where you go on holiday leading up to starting a series and then you realise you're starting a series in Genesis. And, uh, and then you realise it's probably the most uh, discussed and overwhelming passage in all of Scripture. And you go, this will be fun. And I have no doubt that many of you will want lots of conversations afterwards uh, now, there's lots of things we're not going to cover today, and, uh, and I don't want to get sidetracked today either. Uh, so I have some things I'm going to tell you, and no doubt they won't fill you and all your questions fully, but no doubt there are lots of YouTube videos. No, just kidding. You can come and see me uh, at any time to discuss uh, more of this, and I can direct you to some very intelligent people who could probably help you more than I can. So let's pray and we'll have a look at this wonderful introduction to the great God that we know as the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this great beginning. Thank you that we, after looking at a video and feeling so, as people have said, insignificant, that you give us great significance in giving us your word 
to reveal yourself to us and how you created the heavens and the earth. The creator, all-powerful by your word, breathing life and speaking life and speaking existence into everything. And that you have made us in your image, Lord. And so we don't have to come with apprehension or, or come feeling insignificant, Lord, but knowing that you have made us significant simply because Jesus came to live on the earth with us. He died on the cross for us and he was raised to life in the hope that we now stand in. So, Father God, as we open this first chapter of Genesis, be with us, Lord, and help us to be faithful. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. It was a bright cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. It was love at first sight. Call me Ishmael. Are you confused yet? Well, they're the opening lines of five of uh, some of the most popular books ever written in English. The Great Gatsby, Pride and Prejudice, 1984, Catch-22 and Moby Dick. See, a great opening first line of any book is extremely important. It should leave you wanting more. On the surface, it should be relatively simple, but lying within it is a fullness of questions and a fullness of answers. And I don't think there's any greater opening line ever than this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, on the first surface, it's simple. But lying within it is a fullness of questions and a fullness of answers. Who am I? Where did I come from? What is the meaning of my life? Do I have purpose? Am I significant or am I not? Because Genesis 1, as I said, is possibly the most analysed passage of Scripture, each word, each verse, each paragraph, each thought has carefully been mulled over and attacked by uh, other theories. Uh, verse 1 uh, is not only uh, the beginning of the book of Genesis, but it's the beginning of our whole canon of what we call scripture, the revelation of God. God, the one who created, redeemed, revealing himself to us. And you could say in his opening line, he is introducing us to the story of history, the story of humanity, the story of time, the story of life itself. But you see, it's not just any story. It is his story. And as we meet the creator in this opening uh, chapter of the Bible, we will see that he is introducing himself to us. And that is the main concern this morning. It's the beginning of the great love story. 
And we all love the love story that's within every story that we get on our screens. Well, this is the greatest love story ever told. And here's the beginning of it. You see, Genesis 1 to 12 is full of beginnings. It's full of betrayal. And it's full of blessing. And over the course of the next 11 weeks, we're going to encounter a God who is committed to his creation in ways that we could never have anticipated or no human could ever have written into any love story or any story at all. And in fact, we're going to see today, as we look at some of the stories around creation myths in the ancient Near East, that they all come so far short to the true story of God. Now, a number of years ago, many of you will remember this ad. It was a Telstra ad shown on TV. Now, I wasn't a father then, but I understand it a lot better now. A man is driving with his son down the road, and his son's in the back seat, and he simply says, Hey, Dad, why did they build the Great Wall of China? Well, there's an awkward silence, and there's the tick, tick, ticking of a clock in the background. And the father kind of fidgets. And then he says this, he says, Well, that was uh, during the time of Emperor Nasi Goring. And that was to keep the rabbits out. Too many rabbits in China. I've had many of these moments myself. You see, the scene then cuts away to the son in his classroom with the teacher saying, now Daniel will do his talk on China. <laughs> the ad ends with text that says, give your kids the right answers, get them broadband. <laughs> and I have to say, I'm glad I'm a father in the age of broadband. See, the question was a great question, but it was asked of the wrong person. And as we come to Genesis 1, we're going to be tempted to ask lots of questions this morning. But most of them shouldn't be asked of Genesis 1. Genesis was never intended to interact with our scientific knowledge of today. It was never intended to give answers to all the scientific discoveries of the universe. It wasn't written to explain every detail. So we'd be asking the wrong question. It was given to introduce us to God, his mighty power, the perfection in which he created everything, the goodness, the very goodness of the world when it was created, which lies in stark contrast with the, with the ungoodness, the sin of humanity that then prevails from chapters 3 onwards. See, Genesis was written... And the universal movement of fallen humanity is seen in a cycle uh, that goes on and on of, of, uh, of, of beginning, of betrayal and of blessing. And we're going to see that over and over. But this morning we're going to do four things and we're going to look at four areas of this passage. And I know, I just have to say it again, I'm going to disappoint many of you this morning, but I've come to terms with that. Uh, but hopefully I will show you something that you might not have considered before. I want to bring something a little new into this passage because you probably think you know all about it. So what we're going to do this morning is four things. We're going to have a look at the structure of the passage and it's just going to be brief. It's nothing that you haven't heard before. But then I want to spend most of the time, a lot of the time, 
on the historical context of when this was written and for what purpose this was written. It's not that it doesn't mean that it's true, but the form and the way that it was written has a lot to say about the time in which it was written and what it was addressing. And then I want to look at the literary context or how it's placed. Like obviously it's the first chapter of the whole Bible. But what that means for chapters 1 to 11 going into all of Genesis. And then I'm going to uh, consider some of the main emphasis of the passage. Now we're not going to be here for an hour, don't worry. Uh, we're going to get through this uh, in normal time. But I just want to uh, show you that the verse 1 begins with, and I've already said this, Within the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2 tells us that after it was created, the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now one of the debates is whether verse 1 and 2 are all part of the one uh, idea or whether verse 1 is introducing uh, verse 2. It's almost like a heading uh, of verse 2 onwards. Now, I think it's uh, created that way. I think it's been written that way. And I think it's because this is why I had Michael read chapter 2, verse 4. I think they're bookends. It's high. I know, understand there's a great debate around this, but I believe that what's happening is there's a bookend. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, earth and the heavens. And then next week we'll look at uh, a more detailed creation of man and what that means for us. And so uh, then you have the things were created, but the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So that is the initial God created, there it is, and then we go into seven days, six of them of creation and the seventh of rest. And in the structure, and you know this, but I'm just going to show you, uh, it's divided uh, into days one to three and days four to six. Effectively, days one to three is creating the environment and days four to six is filling that environment with life. That's the easiest way that I can say it. Day one, the creation of light. Day two, the creation of sky. Day three, the vegetation and the land on the earth. And then he fills it in days four to six. Day four, the celestial bodies, sun, moon, stars. Day five, sea creatures and birds. And day six, the land creatures with the pinnacle ending in humanity. Distinct from all the other creation, made in the image of God to rule over the rest of creation in God's image on his behalf. So that's just simply a structural overview so you, you get your head around that's how it's structured. And then there's the historical context. Now Genesis through to Deuteronomy, which we know as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible or the law, is attributed to Moses by all the traditional uh, biblical traditions and the majority of biblical scholars, both past and present. So I'm not going to debate that, and I'm not going to. We're going to make an assumption now that those scholars know a lot more than us, 
and most of them understand it a lot more. And so we, and I believe, Moses is the author. And why this is important is it creates for us a historical and cultural context in which Genesis was written. And particularly this uh, chapter was written. See, it opens us up to understand, well, what worldview was prevailing over that area, Mesopotamia, in that time when the Israelites were being set aside as God's people? See, one of the things that's important for us to understand is it was written uh, after the Exodus and before the death of Moses. God was creating a people for himself. He is setting them aside. And what he's doing is he's revealing to Moses the true creation of the true God, the one who Moses has been given the name of, Yahweh, I am who I am, I will be with I will, who I will be. I am without beginning, without end, the Alpha and the Omega. No time frame. And here is the account of how I created the heavens and the earth. In stark contrast to the other mythologies, the other, uh, the other epics that were written around the time that created the worldview of that time. So the style of Genesis 1, as with many accounts in Genesis 1 to 11, have been written in a form that addresses the worldview of that time. It doesn't undermine the truth of it, but it is certainly in a form which is dealing specifically with what uh, the misunderstandings of the creation accounts of the time. Now, one of the, one of the oldest myths that we have... Uh, you may know this, you may not, is the Enuma Elish. Uh, it's a Babylonian myth of, uh, and it, it was recorded on seven tablets. It tells of Marduk, the god Marduk's ascension to the head of the Babylonian pantheon. Okay? Uh, it, was, it begins with a creation account leading up to a description of the birth of Marduk. It describes the dis discontent between the wild, demanding younger gods and the older gods who just wanted to live in peace and quiet. Sounds like every family home. So there's this great battle that occurs. And, uh, and the younger gods were led, uh, led by, uh, what's her name? I've got it up there. Eliamic, I think it is. And she was, she was the god of the water. See, in the creation account, there was chaos and she, she was the god of water. She came from the water. And so Tiamat, sorry, Tiamat. And so they have this battle. Mar Marduk puts his hand up and says, I'll represent you. And they have this battle. And Tiamat is defeated by powerful incantations and her corpse is used to construct the cosmos. And Marduk organizes the cosmos and the divine realm and is proclaimed king of the gods. People are then created by the blood of Kingu and a partner, the partner of Tiamat in the rebellion. The availability of people to do the work that the younger gods had been obliged to do uh, relieves the tension among the gods and, uh, and the composition ends with the proclamation of Marduk's 50 names. Now you're going, why are you telling me all that? Well, this creates the worldview of the time. 
And what it does is it shows us certain things. Gods have competing agendas and limited jurisdiction. They don't have ultimate authority. In fact, all collectively they don't even have ultimate authority. Uh, God's represented were in the forms of human beings or, or nat- natural elements, the created one that we know of. The creation, had the f- they were in the form of the created. There was no code of conduct. There was no consistency. There was no accountability. Humanity provided the food and the housing for the gods, so the gods were effectively dependent on humanity. And, de- and ha- humanity derived its worth from providing for the gods. Creation accomplished, uh, was accomplished by the procreation of gods and the conflict between the gods. See, all the dignity of humanity was derived from providing. Now, it's important for us to understand this as we go into Genesis 1. Because the account that we have here is emphasizing things which uh, bring about certain elements which are completely distinct from the prevailing worldview at the time. Now, that might be a bit small, and I'm sorry if that's a bit small. But I just want to highlight some of these differences. So, in the polytheism of the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, in the creation account, it was very similar, undifferentiated water and darkness. In, in, in Genesis, we have water and darkness. But then there's this chaos that is created in their account. Well, we have the Spirit of God hovering over the water. God completely permeating everything. Well, the waters were then deified. Tiamat was a deity from the water. But the waters aren't deified here, they're just water in our account. Creation through God's procreating, whereas our God speaks, uses his word over, and God said, and God said, and God said. He breathes out. He speaks. He doesn't need to procreate. Water then is filled, uh, well the chaos is uh, Tiamat's monsters. We're told here in our account that it's just regular creatures that God has filled the sea with. Humanity in the account is clay mixed with slain deity's blood. What well, is God who takes us from the dust, from dust you come, from dust you will return. And he breathes life into us. The Ruach, the Spirit of God, is breathed into this form to create the image that we are created in, the life that we're given. In the, in the polytheistic world, image of God was only in the king or in idols. But here we're told the image of God is in all of humanity. Every single human being is made in the image of God. Now they are stark contrasts and what they're doing is creating this sovereign God. This God is who is in control of all creation. The one God. The monotheistic God. 
And that really creates this wonderful uh, contrast for us in the historical and cultural context. We see it over in, the, in Genesis here. And then he gives us, he gives us the mandate to rule, to be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, verse 28, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground because we've been created in his image. There is no king simply because all of humanity was called in an order of creation. God is the king. God is the creator. Yahweh is the one who is all-empowering, is the one who is in control of all things and has breathed life and made all things. And we are to rule over the created on his behalf. So they submit to us, we submit to the God of the universe. God is the rightful king here. So hopefully that gives you some sort of historical, cultural, contrasting reality that's happening here in Genesis. And it's important for us to understand that. Because otherwise, we read Genesis on our own terms. See, they weren't an independent culture. They were interdependent. Their value came from what they offered into the world and the, the, the community around them. Whereas we come at Genesis thinking, well, it's all about me. But in many respects, there's a lot of, there's a lot of similarity. Now, I've worked in the indigenous areas of Australia and I've heard a lot of the mythology stories. The great serpent and how the great serpent created the world. See, there is a great consistency in all the falsity of what comes out of man and woman, what comes out of humanity, when we try to figure out where we were created from. And in every instance, it gives us more value and, and power than what we actually have. And in fact, it doesn't separate us enough from the gods. We always have some, something of the gods in us or, the, or us in the gods in all these other uh, mythologies. But one of the stark differences here is the differentiation between God and creation. Yes, we were made in his image, but he is, he is putting in place here a stark differentiation and then a stark differentiation between us and the rest of creation. And that becomes very important when we decide who has control over our life and where we put our trust. Well, that's just a bit of history, uh, which I hope is helpful. Well, the literary context of the passage, and I'm not going to do this every week. This is just important for us to establish uh, Genesis as well, I've decided. Uh, so Genesis 1 to 11 well, what is it actually doing here in the context? Think, Moses has written the whole five books to start the Bible. Uh, God has revealed to him the, the creation account. And so what's Genesis 1 to 11 
which is in stark contrast and using some of these approaches to the ancient Near East. So you've got the flood narrative, which is, uh, we'll talk a bit about that in, uh, when we come to it. Uh, you've got uh, chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, as I like to talk about with my kids, the Tower of Babel, uh, where he confused the language and, and spread all the nations out and confused them so that uh, they were scattered all over the earth as they thought that they could reach up to God in the heavens. So why are these in there? Well, simply because there was questions to be asked by this new Israel. And the accounts are similar to some of the ancient Near Eastern accounts, but they are starkly different. And what Genesis 1 to 11 in a contextual way is doing is setting everything up for chapter 12. Because in chapter 12, everything slows down. And suddenly, we have an individual of Abraham being given promises that he will be made into a great nation. And so that great nation is what Moses is now standing before and leading through the wilderness to the promised land. And so as he writes this down, Genesis 1 to 11 is answering some big questions. Who am I? Where did we come from? Why are there nations scattered all over the earth? And so Genesis 1 to 11 is, is uh, certainly introducing the patriarchs and the God of Israel who claims to be God over all. So it's giving context. Secondly, it's setting the contrasting element between God, the perfect creating God who created everything perfect, to the fallenness of humanity and the cycle that's going through. Well, what's the main emphasis of the passage? I know that I, like I could speak for hours, as you can probably imagine. You're bored enough as it is, but uh, I could speak for hours about this. What is the main emphasis of this passage? Well, everything is God-centred, not man-centred. I think I've used the illustration before. I'm going to forget who the astronomer was. Was it Galileo who discovered that the earth uh, went around the sun rather than the sun around the earth? See, our prevailing idea is that uh, we are so significant that everything must revolve around me. This is the big sin problem that comes in in chapter 3. I will take control of my life. And so even when we look out to space, we assume that everything revolved around the earth. And now we've got videos that are showing us and it's possible that the universe is still expanding. And suddenly we realise how insignificant we are. But the problem is, as we continue to make life about ourselves, and even in all the accounts of the ancient Near East and any other mythologies, you'll find that humanity becomes the centre of it all. And the danger for us here is to think that we are the centre of Genesis 1. Well, actually, we're not. God is the centre of Genesis 1. He is the creator. He is the one who spoke. He is the one who said it was good. And he is the one who said at the end of it, it is very good. Oh yeah, by the way, we were created on that sixth day at the very end. Uh, and yes, we were made in his image. But what a great blessing of grace to us. Yes, it helps us understand who we are, but in context of God. 
Well, secondly, God is all-powerful, demonstrated by the creation of everything with his word. And to take that the next level, John starts chapter 1 of his, his gospel. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. So you think about that vastness of the universe and the God who spoke it all into existence and how insignificant we are when we consider all that. And then he comes in the flesh to dwell amongst us, the word made flesh, the one who is talked about in Genesis 1, comes in the flesh. We're told to demonstrate his great love for us. And this is the great story that's being begun here. The story of blessing after great betrayal. When I was in India in 2008, we did a short-term mission. And this is what we were teaching. The gospel is, is this cycle and um, I still remember the word for sin in Hindi. I think it was Hindi or maybe it was a dialect, but I think it was Hindi, is bap, simply bap. And for, just to get into our heads that sin is central to this, but it's always followed by grace. It's this cycle that we see over and over, and it continues on right to the point of the word becoming flesh. And where the centre here isn't, Genesis 1, it's not us, it's the cross where the word becoming flesh died on it for us. Well, I've mentioned creation is distinct from God and that's critical for us to understand. I've mentioned everything God created was very good. The repetition in Genesis 1 really indicates what's important in this passage. God said it was good God said it was good. God said it was good. God said, well, it was very good. God spoke and he created perfection, not out of chaos, not out of procreation, but simply with his word because his very character in its essence is good. Why do you call me good? Only one is good, and that is God alone. He is good. That's why creation was good. Humanity, well, we showed our true heart. And then it wasn't so good. But now he's made it good again. There you go, there's the gospel. Humanity was created in God's image, and we are distinct from God and other creatures to rule over. I've mentioned that already. Now next week we're going to look at this image of God. So I'm not going to cover that today. So don't go away going, oh, what a waste. Uh, because we'll look at that next we'll look at that next week. Because I think we need to focus on chapter two and look at that at the same time. So there's one God. He created there's one God. He created everything. It's distinct from him. It was good. Humanity was created from the earth distinct from God and the rest of creation, to rule over creation. And then on the seventh day, God rested. Now, there are lots of hot topics here. I'm not going to deal with them all. But I need to let you know that I do know that there are hot topics here. Are these literal days or metaphorical days? Well, you want to divide a church? 
Should we open it up for comment? No, we're not going to do that. I don't think there's any reason it couldn't be literal days. I don't think we need to disempower God in any way. But I think we also have to recognise that the context in which this was written wasn't dealing with specifics about exactly times and things like that. And I think there's openness to the young earth and the old earth. I think there's openness to all that. And the reason there's this raging debate is because Genesis 1 was never written to deal with these things. What matters here is God created And the God that created's name is Yahweh. And he is the one true God. There is no other God. All those false gods are purely stories. This is a true account. Hello, Moto. Got the same phone. So who created God? That's a question you'll get all the time. Well, nobody created God. Get your head around that one. Before time existed. Before there was creation. Father, Son, Holy Spirit was, is, and is to come. There is no beginning or end. He is the beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega. No one created God because God is the creator. There's a lot of philosophical raging debates around that. And it all starts when your two-year-old asks you. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, we're going to look at that next week. I think that's a really important thing for us to get our heads around because that is important. So these are the things that I'm not going to deal with today. And maybe one day we can talk more about those things, but we're going to look at Genesis 1 to 11. And so there's lots of raging debate. But what I want you to go away from today is everything is God-centred and man-centred. God has the power and authority as creator. Let me me just leave you with this. So Romans 1.20. It says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Now, I don't know if you've contemplated God's creation recently, but we've just been in Dubbo, and you get to see more stars in Dubbo. I've lived in the rural parts of Australia, and... I tell you, just look at the stars. We've seen a video, but get out at night. Get away from those fluoro lights and have a look. And then go and find a leaf and start contemplating the veins and all the intricacies of that leaf. And then hold a newborn baby in your arms and just consider that for a moment. And then go and look at the way the bees uh, head on to the flowers and I always get it wrong. They collect pollen or nectar. My kids always correct me. And And then watch the way they go and pollinate the farmer's fields. The farmers love bees because it, 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 it pollinates so that the crop will bear seed. 
And then you go and you watch the ants and the, what they do. And then you look at a flower and the intricacies. And then you feel overwhelmed by the beautiful colours that are all around us. And then you get in a helicopter over Wyndham up north, like I've been on many occasions. And you look down at the mudflats and you see what looks like the veins of the human body, but it's the river systems in the mudflats. In the mudflats. And then you go and you start talking to someone and you, you recognise the intelligence that they have and you read some of these scholars and you go, my goodness, how much knowledge do we have? And you listen to the scientists and what they've discovered and you reflect on just how much we know but then we realise how much we don't know because in the next breath someone's going, actually, we've discovered that atoms don't go around they go in this funny shape and there's something else in there as well and we haven't named it yet. And then you start considering the wonderful way the sun rises every morning when you're camping in the outback and it sets every evening. And you think, wow, the one who has ordained that hasn't just wound up his clock and set it in place, but every morning he decides that that sun will rise and it will set again. And then as Job, we start questioning God, well, what about our suffering? And he says, well, were you there caring for the, the, the deer as it gave birth to its fawn? Were you there when I got the lightning bolts that struck out of the clouds from the sky? Were you there, the storehouses of lightning? Were you there when I brought the floods to wash out the river systems which are now teeming with little fish down at Jelly Bean Pool? Were you there? See, what we should be doing is standing in awe of God today. These are all nice things that I've said and these are all important things to help us understand. But the impact on Israel and the impact for us is to step back and go, whoa, there is a God who created everything and we had nothing to do with it and we don't feed him but he provides for us. We are not there to appease him but he is there creating us to love us to bring us into relationship, even when we have rebelled and rejected and told him, you know what, we don't want anything to do with you. We're going to ignore the way that you've created the world. We're going to build all these things that ruin your envir environment, make your animals extinct, ruin your planet. We're going to put pollution through the river systems. So what does he do? He sends his son to the earth in order to live amongst us, to live the life that we could not live, not just as an example, but to die on the cross in order for us to be brought back into relationship with him because at Eden he pushed us out because his holiness could never be in relationship with our unholiness. Not his doing, our doing. So how do we fix that? How do we pray? How do we deal with this God? Well, Jesus said, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. 
and forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For the, king, the power of the kingdom and the glory are yours, now and forevermore. Amen. Heavenly Father, we pray the Lord's Prayer and there's nothing more we need to add to that. And so, Lord, help us to sit in awe of you just as creator. But, Lord, when we consider you as redeemer, help us to sit in awe and we consider that you, not, you have given us your name, you have given us your Son, and you have given us everything. So, Father, as we go into this week, help us to sit in awe of the one who created us, who knitted us in our mother's wombs, who wrote the name of us in the book of life before you even created the world, that you chose us, as Ephesians says. Father God, help us to put you as centre and stand in awe and be still and know that you are God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.